Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is James Bernstein, M.D., who is chairman of Anywhere. Today we will discuss the business of doing good. Jim is also chief executive of Anywhere, a company that intends to provide portable, power-free, low-temperature, low-cost sterilization of medical instruments in low-resource settings to change the healthcare in the developing world, disaster relief work, and in militaries throughout the world. A serial healthcare entrepreneur driven by a vision and passion for social impact, he has 35 years of experience leading innovative enterprises in the United States and abroad. A graduate of Harvard College and Cornell University Medical School, he worked in Peru and India as a hospital-based surgeon while in medical school. He trained in internal medicine at the 2nd Division of Bellevue Hospital in New York City and general thoracic, vascular, and transplantation surgery with Marshall Orloff at the University of California, San Diego University Hospital. Jim, welcome. Delighted to be here. Let's start with a basic concept. When we talk about the business of doing good, the topic that we've said to our audience we're going to discuss, what are we talking about? This is a health-related topic, right? Right. Well, you know, um, most people think about doing business as making money. That's what business is supposed to do. And most of us have been taught that the best way to make money is to have customers who need what you have. But there are other ways to account for business, and increasingly people are referring to the three bottom lines of business, of which profit is only one. And the other two are um, the the two that refer to what doing good means. And the first one is people. So doing a business which is helpful to people is both your employees and also to people in your community and maybe the people in the world in which you find yourself. So people is the second P of the three P's of triple bottom line accounting. And the last P is planet. So it's very important um, in today's world that what we do is contributing to the welfare of the uh, what I call the fish tank in which we find ourselves, which is the earth. And we can't anymore be doing things uh, that, that disrupt the world in which we live. So... Uh, there's another way to account for your business is to look at your business about are you making money for your investors and then are you making the world a better place for your employees, your customers, and your community and are you also uh, treating the the environment well. So that's one way to think about doing good. Uh, the second thing you can think about is is perhaps to step out of your role as an American and think globally. And what I like to say to people is that we in America are used to thinking in the units of a million. And when you start thinking about the world, you're thinking in units of a billion. So there are 300 million people in the United States. That's the usual market that we as American business people think about. But that 300 million people is only 4%, 4% of the total world population today of about 7.5 billion. And that seven and a half billion is going to be closer to nine or ten billion in the next uh, twenty years. That's a very large number of people, and a lot of the things that we do here in this country, including our health care, which can be given to three hundred million people, it's very expensive, but we do it, cannot be applied to seven and a half or nine billion people. So one of the exercises that we're involved in if we get outside of the United States, is to think about ways that you can develop solutions to human problems that, as we like to say, are extremely affordable, extreme affordability as opposed to extremely expensive. And our company is focusing on a very big problem, uh, which exists in the United States, but it's much more acute outside the United States, and that's hospital or healthcare-acquired infection. So most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with what you read in the newspaper about um, man-eating bacteria, um, hospital-acquired infection. You go into the hospital to have a simple procedure, and you end up with a very bad infection. Well, in the United States, that's headline material. 
but it only occurs in maybe one or two percent of all the cases that occur in the hospital in this country. But if you go to the developing world in Africa, parts of Asia, South America, that infection rate can be as high as 30 to 40 percent. And the reason for that uh, is that 60 percent of the population of the world, 60 percent, 15 times as many people as live in the entire United States, live every day without electricity, no electricity at all. And so when they have to have a simple operation, the most simple of operations, oftentimes the instruments that are used for the surgery are not sterile, and so they get infections, they get fistulas, they they are disabled for a long period of time that affects their family and their economy, affects their country. So we as a company here in the United States, we're a U.S. entrepreneurial company, a small business, we're focused on doing very big solutions for very large populations in the world. So we, are, I think, are a classic example of what people refer to as a social impact company or social impact investment, which means not only are we profitable or intended to be profitable, but at the same time, we're going to also do good things for people and do good things uh, for the planet. So that's a... Um, a short answer to your question. Do I understand correctly then that the focus of your efforts, the main focus of your efforts is outward, meaning outside the United States, or are these efforts also targeting the 1%? For example, when you talked about the health-acquired infection, you said that 1% of the cases in the U.S., that 1% of the cases in the U.S., were of this type of infection. Are you, first and foremost, targeting the U.S. for that 1%, or is your primary audience outside the U.S.? Well, the, the primary audience is um, of people who, who don't have electricity, and those are principally outside the United States. But I would remind people that we have natural disasters in the United States that are occurring with increasing frequency, the Katrina in the New Orleans area, Sandy in the New York area, um, where uh, uh, the medical system doesn't function in this country without electricity. Um, there's a group called Doctors Without Borders. It goes around the world taking care of people where there's no electricity. They provided the care in the Rockaways in New York City after Sandy because there was no electricity. So our, our technology will be used in this country when there are disasters, uh, and it's also probably going to be used by the U.S. military but principally where the U.S. military is doing nation-building abroad. So our primary focus is people without electricity, uh, which is not really um, related to geographic boundaries. It's, it's related to where we find them in the world today. What, what was the driver for you to focus on this area of medicine and this area of need? Most people in the U.S., Historically, certainly most doctors, when they complete their studies, go back to set up a practice and focus on developing that and not so much toward the outside world. What was the driver for you? Well, that's it. That, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Eleanor, because it's, um, it's an important part of uh, um, the way I think and the way our company thinks. Uh, I was fortunate enough when I was completing my surgical training um, many years ago, uh, to uh, run Dr. Jonas Salk's laboratory at the Salk Institute. Um, probably many of your listeners don't know who Dr. Salk was. Maybe some do, but Dr. Salk was the, the uh, research doctor who developed the polio vaccine <clears throat> that cured polio um, in America and now uh, pretty much the rest of the world. And he said to me when I was much younger, Something that was very interesting, and I would ask each one of your listeners to ponder what he said because it's it's very uh, enlightening. He said, "You don't meet very many people in your lifetime who have done something big, and by big he meant not made a lot of money, but big meaning you had a positive impact on a very large number of people." So I listened to that as a young man. Um, and decided that I would try and follow his example and see if I couldn't um, 
lead my life in such a way that the sorts of outcomes that I achieved and that my companies achieved would affect lots and lots of people, not just a few people. So if you think about it, if you're a surgeon, you operate on one patient at a time. And so in a lifetime, the number of people you may help is substantial, but it's not big. So I decided not to pursue surgery. And I got into the field of preventive medicine and was one of the pioneers of the preventive medicine movement in the United States. Um, I built a software company that was uh, instrumental in sequencing the human genome. Um, and then I focused um, energy on another very big problem, which was the problem of sterilizing of surgical instruments and diagnostic technologies. And here in the United States, um, most of us now are the beneficiaries of what I refer to as keyhole surgery and what is called in the trade non-invasive surgery, where surgery is done through very small holes in the body using endoscopes um, and other tools that can visualize what's going on and can even be driven by robots. But they're all very complicated. They have electronics, they have adhesives, they have lenses, they have all sorts of things which cannot be sterilized in the usual way. So uh, we set about um, to develop a sterilization technology which would be compatible with all the new technologies that were being developed here in the United States. Things like pre-filled syringes and implantable devices and uh, polymer-based implants, so-called shape memory polymers that replace um, parts of your knee. And in the process of developing that technology, it became very clear that you could use that same technology without electricity and in a very expensive manner uh, in the developing world. Uh, and that, for me, was always my sweet spot, which is why I went to Peru and why I went to India. Uh, and I was always, in, in my inner self, committed to doing big things for the world. And so having developed this new sterilization technology for the U.S., uh, I, I saw that as a great opportunity to make a big contribution in the world. And I suspect there are many of your listeners who are doing something right here at home in the U.S. that could be very useful to many, many, many people around the world. And I would encourage all of your listeners to think about ways you can take what you're doing, um, you know, American entrepreneurship and American technology and become a global diplomat and go off to the other parts of the world and build your business where there are billions of people uh, as opposed to millions of people. And that could be as close by as in Central America, um, the Caribbean or South America, or it could be as far away as, as uh, Madagascar on the east coast of Africa. But a lot of the things that um, many of your listeners are currently doing um, can do very well in the emerging markets of the world. So that's, that's what's driving our company. What would you say to the concept that some people hold that intervening in other cultures and in other worlds, it can have negative impacts that when someone from the outside who is unfamiliar with what is going on and unable to participate in other aspects intervenes by providing vaccines or technology or water, whatever good intentions they bring, that they are in fact causing problems or aggravating existing problems because there is a harmony to the environment and by coming in from the outside with these changes, they are, in fact, causing more harm than good. What would you respond to that? I would say that that is a very wise observation on your part and is oftentimes completely correct. Uh, and just the way you don't... Uh, going to uh, an elementary school in San Antonio, Texas, and try and sell them a textbook, which you think is exactly correct for them. Uh, but what you do is you go there and you, and you find out what they need. Um, if, you're, if you are market-driven and you are culturally sensitive, you never go anywhere in the world and try and tell them what they need. Uh, that's certainly not the way we operate. You go somewhere where there is a clearly understood need and where there's a, a great hunger for a solution, and you offer your solution, and then what you do is you try and customize and adapt 
your solution. And the term that's used in our world is co-creation, which means local people with local customs and local skills are intimately involved in designing the particular adaptation that you are making of your American product, if you like, to be used, whether it's in Uganda, whether it's been used in Kenya or Indonesia or Cambodia. You have to have local people totally involved with what you're doing. Otherwise, you, in fact, make the mistake um, that you're describing, which has been well uh, described in the business literature. It's been well described in the news. Um, it's a very common mistake, and if you are um, a successful business person, you know that the, the first thing you try and do is never repeat someone else's mistake. You try and avoid that. So your point is extremely well taken, and it's right on the money as far as I'm concerned. Let's go back to basics, if you would, and talk a little bit more about the concept itself that's behind this if you would bear with us, lay people, and explain a little bit more when you talk about healthcare-acquired infections. I know sure. you said it's a small percentage in the U.S. and a very large percentage in places without electricity, but where do they come from, and, and, and who's sure. getting them? What what are they? Yeah, so let's let's take a step back and let's do a uh, a, a little um, elementary biology class here for a minute. So. Um, Bacteria um, are very simple organisms uh, that um, grow by dividing. They don't. They, they basically have ace, what's known as asexual reproduction. So you put one or two bacteria um, on a, uh, a piece of bread or a piece of meat, and you leave it out in your kitchen, uh, and they divide um, quite rapidly. The warmer it is, the faster they divide, uh, and they. That's what they do. So if you think about your body as a great big warm incubator, full of water, it's very warm, and you put a bacteria um, into your body where it doesn't belong, and it's a bacteria that your body's not used to having, it will then begin to divide and cause an infection. That's number one. Number two, there are bacteria that are all over the place, but there are also bacteria today that are resistant to antibiotics because they have been exposed to antibiotics over a long period of time, and the ones that have survived those antibiotics now are the ones that inhabit the earth, so to speak. So we have industries, particularly agriculture, uh, where antibiotics are used to increase the growth of the animals. And the uh, the, the, the principal ones are, are um, uh, hog farming, cattle farming, chicken farming. Uh, and because of that, bacteria are produced in large volume, that are resistant to the antibiotics that are used, and then they get into the hospital. Uh, they weren't there to start with, but they get there. They come in with the people who picked up these bacteria, and now you have bacteria in hospitals that are resistant to antibiotics, and they get into you, and when you have an operation, if there's not absolutely perfect attention paid to sterility, you get an infection, and then that infection is harder to treat. So it's more expensive. And for those of you who, who read the paper a lot, you'll know that in the last week there was a big article in the national press about a new problem in this country with a particular antibiotic uh, that's resistant to all the bacteria that it was designed to treat are now all resistant. So that that is where we're getting our infections principally in the United States. Now, when you go outside of the United States, it's a lot simpler, much simpler. Now, it's not about resistant bacteria. It's about the fact that the surgical instruments that are being used are not sterile at all, which means that whatever bacteria are on them, whether they're antibiotic resistant or not, you put them into that big old warm incubator called the human body, and they begin to grow and they cause infections. So the exercise uh, in the United States is to take very, very serious precautions and change the way we behave as a country to reduce the amount of it antibiotic-resistant bacteria we're producing, uh, whereas in the developing world, the exercise is to provide sterilization of the instruments in ways that don't require uh, electricity. So there are two, two different problems, both big problems. And for your audience, the one in the United States is the more immediate. So if you have a, um, a son or a daughter who cuts himself in high school and goes in to get something sewed up, you're very interested in making sure that 
your child does not get an infection in the wound that was sewn up at the hospital. And there, all the instruments are sterile. Everything is sterile. But there may be some bacteria that um, were in the wound to start where they are not responding to antibiotics, and you get an infection. That's where the 1% to 3% comes from in the United States. And what is the solution in that case? Well, the solution in that case is one which is of great um, public discussion, and I um, um, will only uh, give you the parameters of the discussion without suggesting the solution. Um, so there are, we always in this country have a great uh, tension, uh, and as most small and medium-sized business people know, and they're very aware of, there's always a tension between the profit of your business, that's one of the three P's, and the other two P's, people and the environment. So if you're a hog farmer, uh, your goal is to make as much money as you can if that's the way you think. So you do whatever you can to, to grow the biggest and fattest pigs as inexpensively as possible. And that's why you give them antibiotics. But by doing that, you're having an adverse impact on people and the environment. And so the question is, are you prepared to reduce the first P, profit, in return for increase in the other two Ps, uh, the environment uh, and people? Uh, and that's a, that is an ongoing conflict in our society today. If you wanted to eliminate antibiotic-resistant bacteria, the first thing you do is you stop giving antibiotics to livestock. That's well known. But at the same time, by doing that, you're changing the economics of those industries, which are essential to the livelihoods of an awful lot of people. So there's a conflict there. And uh, I'm not about to solve that problem, but I think I can lay it out for you. And that's a that's I'm sure there are people listening in here who are shaking their heads saying, well, my business is very important to me, and I'm not about to yield an inch on that. Um, that's the way we are. So I can't solve that problem, but I can lay it out for you. In terms of the specific case that you presented a moment ago, the sample case, let's call it, of the parents whose child ends up in the emergency room, what options are available and how does that relate to the business that you're working on at your company? So the, the two are unrelated. Uh, the only relationship is is to think about yourself as a parent in Sudan or in Kenya, uh, where you bring your child to a little rural health center where there's not a surgeon, there's maybe a health worker um, who is going to sew up your wound with a unsterile um, set of instruments. Um, so you can imagine how you would feel if you went um, to um, your emergency room in Sacramento and uh, a community health worker was going to sew up your daughter's facial laceration that she got because she fell off her bike uh, and said, oh, by the way, these instruments aren't sterile at all. Uh, you would not be very happy about that. So the connection is, I think, is to reflect on what is the very best in the world, which is the Sacramento emergency room, and how that compares to what we're dealing with in the emerging markets and the developing world. Uh, that's really the connection. And what are you developing, or more accurately, is there a product that is available today to address the issues in those places that have no electricity, like, as you said earlier, after Hurricane Sandy and Katrina and so forth? Uh, there is, as of right now, today, there are none. There are none. Uh, what you are uh, limited to is uh, boiling water over a fire um, or using a disinfectant, um, Clorox, for example, is a disinfectant. But a disinfectant only kills some of the bacteria. It doesn't kill all of the bacteria. So a disinfectant does not produce a sterile instrument, which means that you get those bad little bacteria in your wound that divide and multiply and cause the infection. So there isn't anything today. Our company, Anywhere, has a technology which is based upon a very well-known gas, nitrogen dioxide, which comes out of the exhaust pipe of cars and the smokestacks of power plants. It's also the yellow uh, 
uh, color that you see in the sky in a big city, which is photochemical smog, that is nitrogen dioxide. Uh, and that gas is a very powerful sterling. Uh, and we are creating a very simple container uh, into which we um, inject a small amount of that gas. And after an hour, uh, you can take out your instruments and they're sterile. Uh, and that is extremely affordable. It should be able, we should be able to do that for less than two dollars every time it gets used. And the actual container will probably be somewhere between 100 to 200 dollars and will be, have a life, a long, long life. So we're, we are creating a very, very affordable, very simple, almost no moving parts except for the top container that goes up and down, uh, solution to a very big problem. Uh, in a very inexpensive way. Uh, and we're in the midst of doing that right now. That sounds revolutionary. Uh, well, it's, um, it's, it's disruptive, it's new. Uh, and what's very pleasing to us is that historically when people from the United States went off to the four corners of the world on, with church groups and places like Rotary Club and being goodwill ambassadors around the world, they would um, be limited to taking things which were um, either cast off or not being used, um, not the newest stuff in the world, uh, with them to help people. And this is the most cutting-edge technology in the world today. And we're taking it directly into those parts of the world that need it the most. Uh, and it's not a cast-off, it's cutting-edge, and we feel pretty good about that. And this addresses specifically healthcare-acquired infections. Is that right? Yeah, this is, this is addressing the problem of what is referred to as surgical site infection, the infection of wounds that are caused by or treated by surgery, so-called primary care surgery. It will also be used be used for medical uh, devices that are used in childbirth, for example, like. Um, masks that are put over children's faces to help them breathe when they're born uh, that need to be sterile so that the kid doesn't get pneumonia. So this is um, a very, very powerful part of uh, dealing with that problem. What is the difference between health-acquired infections and surgical site infections, or is there a difference? They're, they're pretty much the same thing. A surgical site infection is a sometimes simplest way of putting it is a if you get a cut, on your finger and it gets all red and weepy, that's a, a wound infection. And if you have a incision that's made on your body and it's sewed up and it gets all red and begins to exude pus, that's a wound infection or a surgical site infection. You could also get an infection inside your body from surgery. That's also a surgical site infection. Um, Hospital-acquired infection may be that you go to the hospital and you get... Uh, um, a GI, you know, you get a stomach flu, you get a um, um, pneumonia. Uh, that's not from surgery. So not all healthcare required infection is from surgery, but a large part of it is. In what way is this a profitable model, going back to the concept of business? How can you make a profit, or can you make a profit with a product that's going to sell for $2 per use and $100 for the container? Is it possible for this to be profitable, and if so, how do you do it? Right. So it's a very, very good question, and it's one that that we are constantly addressing. Uh, And the reason why the question gets asked uh, is that we have, uh, in this country, we have small, relatively small markets. So if you're selling sterilization equipment in the United States, you have maybe 3,000 hospitals as the market, and you may have, you know, hundreds of thousands of doctors' offices and clinics. Those are, and so the amount of revenue you can generate in a company is the price of your product times the size of your addressable market. Well, the addressable market for what we're doing is measured in hundreds of millions or billions. So you just you just take a very, very simple example, uh, country X that might have 30,000 community health workers 
each of whom has one anywhere sterilizer that they use um, once a day, uh, 300 times a year. And so that would be, do the math, right? It comes out to be a pretty big number. Uh, that's just one little example. So if you have uh, a big market and you know what your margins are, you know, you're, you're, you have business people listening to this program. We all know what our margins are. Uh, as long as you have, you know what your margins are uh, and your price um, reflects that uh, and you have a low price with a high margin, but you have a very high volume, you have a profitable business. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about what our revenue forecasts are uh, in the public airspace because the SEC doesn't much like me to do that. Um, but we expect to have a very profitable um, business here uh, based upon um, a very large volume of usage uh, with a relatively low price. And it's often referred to as um, making uh, millions from the bottom billions. That's sort of the jargon, the bottom of the pyramid, so to speak. One of the ideas or one of the questions that comes to my mind when I hear you describe the concept is, is it something that other people are going to copy once it's out in the market, as we've seen lately, for example, and this is, of course, in the very high-tech space of digital products, but we know of several companies that have been duking it out in the courts because everybody says they were the ones that started the technology and they're the ones that own it. But how do you keep other people, other companies, especially outside the United States where the laws are different and the ethics are different, how do you keep them from copying what you've spent all this time and energy to develop? Well, uh, that's a generic question now, isn't it, uh, Eleanor? Uh, we have um, very good patent protection for what we're doing. So we're patent protected. Uh, and we've had um, uh, people in other countries who have looked at the patent and thought they might want to do what we're doing and decided not to because of the patent. But um, uh, from a, a purely um, humanitarian point of view, uh, as long as we can have a successful business, which I'm sure we're going to have, and if other people decide they're going to copy it in places where they don't respect the patent treaty, but they can help people, um, I suppose we should be happy about that in a, in a, in a more global sense. Um, but we're not, I'm not particularly worried about major patent infringement on what we're doing, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one would be that, uh, one of the principal sources of funding for our customers are um, public institutions like the World Bank, uh, and they're not in the habit of um, um, paying for things that have been that are basically um, bootleg products. Um, whether this should um, be used in China without our knowing about it, um, that may well happen. Um, uh, but we have patents. I guess that's the simplest way to put it. And um, um, there are enough business people listen to your program who are uh, shaking their head either up and down or sideways, understanding that patent protection is only part of the game. We're the first one out there, so we'll have customers who are using this, and you know we'll have customer loyalty as well, which I think at the end of the day is just as good a protection as patent protection. Sounds like you've thought it through. What kind of a timeline are you looking at? I know you said that it's still under development. But can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I'm sure, again, in your audience, there are plenty of people who have started businesses, and then, and you know that your time to market is a function of not only how well planned you are, but how you your financing goes. So we, we expect to be in the market within the next 18 months. I think that's probably a reasonable expectation. It depends in part on how successful we are in, in getting uh, investors, but... Um, we think about 18 months, about right. 18 months for the product to actually be become available. In the market, yeah. In, in the first markets. Since we have a very, very big uh, market, we're not going to be all over the world. We're going to start and iron the kinks out, and then we'll go from there. Do you have an idea of where you will be present first? 
I, I am reasonably certain we'll probably be present first in one or two countries uh, in Africa. Um, that's the way it looks right now. Um, one of the things I would say um, is that the part of our business model is uh, part of our global diplomacy is the production and distribution uh, and the, the actual production of the gas will be done locally. Um, and we may be creating a whole value chain of small-scale businesses that support this intervention, which would be a very good thing. What challenges do you foresee as you start to make the product available and penetrate the different markets? Uh, yeah, the, big, the biggest challenge is what you don't know. Um, I think a lot of people out there would agree with me that you get into a business and you run it and you think you've got it all down and then you discover that there were a few things that you didn't know, you didn't expect, and they become challenges. So uh, that's number one. Number two, we're going into parts of the world where, we're, where the, 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 the answer may be obvious to us, but it may not be so obvious to the people working with it. It may take longer for the technology to be used or learned or adapted. Uh, we're prepared for that. We, we expect that, but that's a big challenge. Um, but I think the biggest challenge at the end of the day is um, yourself. You have the, the fortitude and the, the tenacity to go the distance, like running a marathon or climbing a mountain or playing a football game. Can you go the whole distance or do you wear out in the fourth quarter? Have you embarked on a journey similar to this one in terms of the the type of product and the breadth of need, if you will, the, the number of places it might have use and need for this kind of product. Have we have I done that with in this instance or previously? It, yes. Have you or your company ever worked on a project of this breadth? Yes. The answer is yes. We have. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I've. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the program, I like to focus on things that affect large numbers of people. So um, I've never been one to make small plans. Let's put it that way. And it's no more difficult to make big plans than it is to make small plans. Um, and um, so the answer is yes, um, several several occasions. I heard you mention a few minutes ago investors. Are you looking for investors at this moment? Um, so uh, the, the answer to your question, I'm going to give it to you in a very um, – uh, I'm not going to answer your question directly because this is public airwaves and you're not supposed to do that, so I won't. <laughs> um, but we are an investor-backed company, let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, just to, just to, to alert some of, the, of your audience, uh, I'm not trying to be difficult, but companies like Facebook and Google uh, that were doing public offerings of their uh, stock got into serious trouble and had to delay their offerings because they were being interviewed by someone just like you and began to tell people about how wonderful that company was before they had registered their offering. And that's a serious SEC violation. So we're... We have taken very good advice on everything we do on our company, and so this is one of the areas where I'm going to be a little bit um, less than forthright with you because I'm supposed to be. So this is a publicly traded company in no, your... No, we're not. No, we're not. We're investor-backed, but we're a privately held company, um, and we are um, constrained and are not supposed to be um, raising money by talking to you. Let's put it that way. So we're not doing that. So even though you're a privately held company, you have restrictions in yes. terms of raising monies from investors? Yes. And um, th th Those are well known, um, but I don't hesitate to tell you that. I'm sure many people in your audience have um, um, raised money um, from with private place memorandums from uh, angel investors or venture funds that are not publicly traded. Uh, and there are SEC requirements that, um, that control that. Um, uh, you, you know, you're not supposed to raise money from people who are not accredited investors. 
and their and their rules for that. Um, and you're not and you're supposed to you know have full disclosure of all material things and so on and so forth. Um, so yes, you're required to do that, and we follow that very 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 carefully of being a very ethical uh, group of people. Okay, so we won't talk about investment opportunities. Let me ask you this. For people who want to know more about the topic of surgical site infections and health-acquired infections, where can they go? What sources of information sure. are the, available? I think the simplest, um, um, there are two ways to do that. In today's world, if you Google surgical site infection, you'll get the world uh, in front of you. If you go to our website, uh, which is anywhere sterile, E-N-I-W-A-R-E, not A-N-Y, but E-N-I-W-A-R-E, anywhere sterile.com, uh, there are a whole series of references on our website, which would be a very quick way if you're interested to learn more about it. Uh, and in the meantime, you probably also learn more about us, which would be fine. What does the word anywhere mean while we're on the subject? E-N-I-W-A-R-E. Is there a particular meaning to that? Yes, it is a, uh, a brand of the word A-N-Y-W-H-E-R-E, which means that our sterilization can be used anywhere, anytime, day and night. Is this the first product launch for the company? Yes, and what are you planning after this? It sounds like you have big plans, and this isn't going to stop just with one product. Well, uh, we're going to be providing, uh, as the market dictates, additional products and supplies to support safe surgery in um, low-resource settings. Uh, and we may very well um, get involved in some um, um Areas where there's um, uh, high-speed Internet going into off-grid areas where we'll be able to provide training and uh, additional support uh, over the Internet. And that, that's one that you need to stay tuned to. <laughs> How long has it taken you to get to this point? It, it seems easy when we hear about the concept, you know, what they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. but I have to imagine that getting even to where you are now has required a lot of thinking and a lot of research and time. Uh, you have that exactly correct. You're a wise woman, Eleanor. Uh, you've been doing this for a while, I can tell. So Anywhere is a spin-out of another company, which is called Noxilizer, N-O-X-I-L-I-Z-E-R. Uh, which is a, um, a private company that was angel investor funded uh, that developed the underlying technology, and that was nine years' worth of work uh, to develop the underlying technology and a very large sum of money. Uh, and Anywhere is the beneficiary of all that. We licensed the technology to use it in the developing world, disaster zones and militaries. Uh, and so we started Anywhere eight years down the road from where Noxalizer started. So innovation uh, is always a lengthy process, and innovation is never what you think it is. Whoever had the original idea always depends upon a whole bunch of people who followed on and added to the innovation. There's not a single major piece of innovation you'd find anywhere where it was only one person who did it. So this is what we're doing now is the end result of Years and time and people, and we're the beneficiaries of all that. Going back to the concept of the business of doing good and impacting the lives of many, from a business perspective, what would you say to our listeners that are the advantages of taking that path? You talked earlier about the three P's, profit, people, and planet. Is there a direct correlationship between the social impact, making that a part of your mission, and the business concept? Yes, I'm glad you asked that question because it's not something that I think a lot of people think about. So um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're building a business, then one of your 
goals is to have a liquidity event, which is to have somebody buy your company or be merged into a company. If you are a larger company, which is publicly traded, uh, you, you may have stock options or uh, ownership, uh, which is based upon the value of your company, which is market-based. And your the value of your stock is not up to you. It's up to the market. So the question is, is a company that has um, profit of X, let's say, and does not have a social impact, is its value uh, less the same or more than a company who has the same profit X, but also has a social impact part of their accounting? And the answer now is becoming abundantly clear that the added value you get to your um, valuation, whether it be an acquisition, a liquidity event, or a public market, if you have a social impact in your business, it's a very big multiplier, a very big multiplier. And I would urge those of you who doubt that or are more interested in that, have a look at what happened to Burt's Bees um, or Tom's of Maine Toothpaste. They're two entrepreneurial or Ben and Jerry's. So small entrepreneurial startups uh, that were acquired or had liquidity events that were far, far, far more valuable than anybody ever imagined. Um, Tom's of Maine and Burt's Bees were both close to a billion dollars, a billion. Uh, one was a natural toothpaste company and the other one was a natural cosmetics company, um, both with a very big P and a very big E, um, environmental impact and people impact. Um, attached to them. So I would, I would urge your listenership to have a serious look at that and to think about your business, uh, what you can do to, to increase the other two P's of your business besides just profit. And by the way, uh, um, I think your children will all be proud of you if you do that because they're growing up in a world where that's a really a strong value. What suggestions would you share with our listeners who feel inspired by your entrepreneurship and your sense of social impact, but perhaps feel intimidated by the concept of launching a product or a company with these kinds of goals? What suggestions would you share with them as to how they might get started or move forward if perhaps they've already given it some thought. Right. Well, so your, your question really has two parts. Is If you're an entrepreneur, what is it? Or you like to be an entrepreneur, what do you need to have? Um, and I would say that that's, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, first of all, you need to have a lot of courage, the courage of your convictions. Uh, and if you have a family, you better have talked to your spouse uh, and make sure that your spouse is... Um, behind you and is willing to um, have you disappear off the screen for a number of years because it's a very uh, full-time exercise to build a company. Uh, and then I would suggest that you uh, pay attention to my favorite quote uh, from George Bernard Shaw, which goes like this. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. Most of us do that, by the way. The unreasonable man persists in adapting the world to himself, and therefore all meaningful change is made by the unreasonable man. So I would urge you, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you want to change the world, that you learn to be unreasonable. And that means that you have you follow your heart as well as your head, uh, and that you that you um, think of what you're doing as a mountain climbing expedition as opposed to a business proposition. And if you were going to go on a mountain climbing expedition with five of other people on a very difficult climb where there was not a map, uh, you'd pick your people very carefully, uh, and you'd also make sure that you took very good care of them and that you thought much, as much about them as you thought about yourself. Uh, because if you don't do that, you don't get to the top. So the people part of the three Ps is um, for a – an entrepreneur is about as important as anything else. You do not build a business without great people. 
You can't do it by yourself. There's, there's not a single business that you can do by yourself. And so uh, building a team uh, is absolutely critical. And if you're not the kind of person who has the ability to do that, then join a team. Don't lead a team. Uh, but if you have leadership skills and you can motivate people, then I give it a crack. Uh, and then finally, I think I would say that um, psychologically, to do something like this, you really have to pay attention uh, to what you're best at. And one of the people who work in our companies know that the first thing that Dr. Bernstein ever asks anybody who walks into the door who's interested in joining our team is, what are you best at? Uh, and you don't want to spend your life or your waking hours doing what you're second best at. And most people don't think hard enough about what they're best at. So, you know, after you get done listening to this podcast, ask yourself, what am I best at? And if you don't know, ask your children or ask your spouse or ask your friends, what are you best at? And then ask yourself whether you're spending enough time doing what you're best at. So that's number one. The second thing is that you should be getting joy from your work. And if you're not really getting a lot of joy from your work, then something's not right. Fix it. Fix it. And if you're getting joy from your work and you do it very well, uh, the chances are you're you're going to be a very good social entrepreneur um, by default. You won't have to think very hard about what you're doing because most people get more joy from doing good uh, than from not doing good. So if you focus your energy on doing something that gives you joy, nine times out of ten you're going to end up being right in the sweet spot of the social entrepreneur. Is there a way that our listeners can reach you, uh, maybe an email or a podcast, um, or a way that they can contact you if they have sure. questions? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, um, I tend to be very generous with my time with people who are trying to build a business or trying to change the world. So I'd encourage anybody who's interested uh, to send me an email. Um, my email address is James. Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N, at anywhere, E-N-I-W-A-R-E, sterile, one word, dot com. Thank you, Jim, for joining us from Washington, D.C. You're very welcome. And I hope uh, that uh, people who've uh, listened to this get benefit from it and uh, that they'll uh, focus on making the world a better place. And to our audience, thank you for listening to James Bernstein, M.D., who is chairman of Anywhere, who discussed the business of doing good. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.